This episode of the King's Hall is brought to you by Ideal Poultry and our supporters at Patreon.com. Well, welcome to another episode of the King's Hall podcast. My name is Brian Sauvet, joined by two Chad Kings, Eric Kahn. Say hi to the people. What's up, my people? Hello. Dan Burkholder. Oh, wait the your sultry. turn, Wow. <laughs> the kidding. sultry, dulcet tones. No, I liked the back-to-back. Jazzy jazz. Because everyone could hear, they were like, that's Eric, because it sounds like he's about to talk about the Aeneid. The Aeneid. And then that's Dan. I'm I'm not going to lie. I was not paying attention, and I just heard, say hello to the people. <laughs> and so I did. He was he was, he was was locked in. I was reading was, about Odysseus. He was in deep so. work. Deep work. <laughs> Well, in this episode, we have an interview that we are very excited to share with you with pastor, real estate investor, father, grandfather, right? Oh, yeah. Grandfather, Pastor Chris Wiley. You may know him as C.R. Wiley, author. Or the real-life Tom Bombadil. The actual Tom Bombadil. <laughs> and uh, Mr. Wiley is just one of those guys that, as soon as we started the King's Hall, even way back... As soon as we started the publishing house, he was on our short list of, of men that we said we need to get a book from Chris Wiley at New Christendom Press. And so we did. So we did. Tell yes. us about it, Eric. Yeah, he was, uh, Chris was kind enough to agree to do a book with us. So uh, he had really proposed the idea. We were kind of talking through a number of themes, and uh, he proposed a book on risk, which I think is phenomenal. And so we got to see the outline for that. Mm. Uh, hope to have a rough draft. I think we're in like November, and uh, we'll see how long production takes. But yeah. uh, I'm I'm excited about it. I, I think there's such a need, particularly yeah. we talked about in this season for fatherlessness, but we're also blessed that we do have some older men in the church who get the problem. Yeah. I think a lot of us just kind of look to Chris as like he's this sage older guy who gets it. Yeah. And he wants to help. Yeah, Dan, what do you – when you think about C.R. Wiley – and fathers and the need for fathers in the church, what strikes you as some of the reasons that this is a guy that our listeners should be paying attention to and heeding when he speaks? Yeah, when you have a guy who has had success in ministry and in investing and in building a a legacy, and it seems like that guy's in your corner, Mm -hmm. man, it means a lot. It really does. It means a lot instead of having you know, kind of the theme that's going around right now is that you have a lot of older guys that it seems like they're just punching down, you know, relentlessly, and it just really grows tiresome. So it's really nice to have that, that respectable guy that has, he's, he has a lot of experience and he, that made him sound like he's really old. He's not that old, but no, but no, like more than a lot of our listeners. And I'm, I'm, I mean, I believe his grip strength is probably probably very high. No, so I mean, it's it's nice to have a guy who's had success and has had experience who's in your corner saying like, no, actually, you can do this. Like, don't yeah. listen to those guys. Like, yeah. you can do it. You know, go for it. And then, you know, give it a shot. And telling you how. Yeah. Giving you practical help. His household for the war for, and the war for the cosmos and some of the other books he's written, the man of the house. Um, these are books that really blend that that wisdom, biblically rooted wisdom that is seasoned by life experience and then has practical handholds that you can grab onto. So um, we're, we're really glad to share this interview with you, and hopefully we'll continue to be able to talk with Pastor Wiley and share more with you guys over the months and over the season maybe. Um, but if nothing else, look out for that title. We'll, we'll obviously, we'll be letting you know as it gets closer so you can buy a case of them for you, your family, coworkers, neighbors, 
just giving them unsolicited to people's mailboxes around you, that sort of thing. Uh, this is a business, folks. Like, you got to help us out here. So yeah, just think if you bought one <laughs> copy for every American and gave it away. Yeah, think what about a it. difference you can <laughs> think make. about the difference you wow. could make. That's only like six hundred plus million copies. You That's know? I mean, come on. Yeah, how Let's, big is the ask? It's big. It's big, <laughs> but it's meaningful. It's, it's meaningful. meaningful. Yeah, I I agree with you, Dan. That it's so rare to find a guy who has the experience who could look down on everybody beneath them and say, like, oh, you whippersnappers. Like, you, again, we're making him sound really old. He's not really that old. But, make, you know, who, who could say, uh, I've, you know, been there, done that, be condescending, punch down, and instead for a, a guy to be like, no, I'm for you, I'm with you, I'm behind you, go for it, you can do it, and here's some wisdom on how. Yeah. So I think that's, I think we're ready to roll the interview. Ray, go ahead and roll that interview for us. Well, welcome to this episode of the King's Hall Podcast. We are in Season 2. We're dealing with Father Hunger, and I am one of your hosts, Eric Kahn. I'm joined today by Pastor Dan Burkholder, and we have a very special guest, Dan. We have Mr. Chris Wiley, or as maybe the audience knows him as C.R. Wiley. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. Great to be with you and Dan. I'm glad uh, to, to spend some time with you. Yeah, absolutely. So, Chris, one of the things that we're excited to talk about uh, with New Christendom Press is, of course, having you on as an author. And I wanted to kind of kick things off to talk about one of the books uh, that you'll be writing for us titled Risk. Now, when I first saw it, I saw the uh, list of chapters that you were thinking of working through. I shared it with the guys here. We were immediately excited about it. So I guess just give us a snapshot, elevator pitch. What is this book about and how did you get to thinking about these ideas? Well, uh, the first... Part of the question is, you know, what's it about? Uh, essentially, there's no such thing as a, ris a risk-free life. So uh, I think we need to deal just forthrightly about risk avoidance and why it's a really risky thing to do and dumb. <laughs> so now that you've got that idea in mind, then the question is, well, what sort of risks are smart? What sort of risks are dumb? And um, how do you proceed? And then since that's the case, what are some strategies for uh, evaluating risks and taking good risks and so forth? And then, you know, I think a lot of folks understand that there is a kind of a risk reward kind of uh, metric that you, that's uh, in play. The safer you play the risk game, the lower your return is likely to be, you know, but that doesn't mean that every crazy risk is a good thing. So, you know, then when you, when you make, uh, you know, uh, decisions that entail risk. How how do you protect the you know yourself on the downside? How can you hedge that? How can you make sure that your family is uh, not put in a in, in a dangerous position? Those sorts of things. So yeah. that's that's basically the, the the nature of it. So based you know the proposed title is uh, you know risk with an exclamation point. Go ahead and take the risk and buy this book. It might change your life. <laughs> that kind of thing. That's great. Uh, one of the things you talk about, uh, at least in the outline, is your, I think it's your great, great, three times or four times grandfather, uh, Captain Nathan Bolin. So I, I've seen some of the stuff on Facebook about him, but tell me a little bit about him and his story and why that's, why that's relevant. Yeah, well, he's uh, someone I've been learning about recently, primarily because my sister has done all of the work on our family tree. And uh, he's not the only one who uh, had a really 
remarkable life, but he is the one who killed the corrupt marshal in Arkansas, William Morris, in an wow. open gunfight in, in uh, Gainesville, Arkansas. That's like kind of famous. <laughs> yes. And I had no idea that, you know, but he, he actually was uh, a bushwhacker uh, and the bushwhackers were Confederate guerrilla fighters after the war, even during the course of the war, uh, who fought in southern Missouri and in Kansas. And the film, The Outlaw Josie Wales, is actually based on those guys. And oh, cool. So my, uh, my ancestor, uh, the Captain Nathan Bolin, uh, this wasn't the only gunfight he'd been in. Uh, I've learned more about him and his history. But this particular episode... He was acquitted for it. So he'd actually turned himself in after killing the marshal, but the marshal was so corrupt, everybody admitted he had grounds to kill him. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So, so he went, he, uh, so the marshal had, had essentially said, if I see him, I'm going to kill him. And Nathan Bolin, my ancestor, said, if I see him, I'm going to kill him because he actually had killed his brother, Jesse. Uh, mm. there, his Jesse had been pursued by a posse, and uh, William Morris, uh, had him shot uh, execution style right on the spot when he was captured. So that was the that was the blood feud that was between these two guys. But Nathan Bolin had been a captain in the in the Confederate cavalry in Elliott's uh, Elliott's Rangers or something like kind of a kind of a famous company in the uh, Confederate uh, cavalry. Anyway, I think it's Elliott's Scouts. But uh, this is following the war. What happened is, uh, you know, my ancestor, Captain Bolin, went to pay his taxes. So, you know, he went to town armed, <laughs> went to the went to the post office to pay his taxes. And guess who was in the room when he walked in? It was William Morris. And while he's in the while he's in there and this is all, uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, multiple uh, yeah. newspaper accounts of the fight. So this is like highly documented encounter. Uh, and when he, my, my ancestor greeted everybody in the room, except William Morris, <laughs> hey, hi, Bob. Hey, Steve. Hey, George. Then the skipped over and went to pay his taxes. And while he's paying his taxes, uh, William Morris cocks his gun. It's in his pocket, cocks it. Everybody hears it. <laughs> and so, yeah. uh, Boland didn't even turn around. He just walked out the back door and was waiting for Morris in the street. And when he got outside, they had it out. And the first shot uh, Captain Bolin took, he shot uh, William Morris in his right arm. And he was unable to draw his own gun at that point. So I don't know if that was intentional. That's like so Josie Wales. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, you, you wonder, was that a mistake or was that intentional? I don't know. So Morris ran, uh, ran home and his wife was waiting for him. Uh, and she had a loaded shotgun ready for him as he ran up. And so she just threw it to him. He turned around and unloaded on my my, uh, my great 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 grandfather, and uh, actually hit a couple of other people. And because there were people in the, in the vicinity of the fight, my you know Boland, Captain Boland, uh, he kind of you know didn't immediately return fire, but it, but when he did, he he put him away, <laughs> and then <laughs> wow. got on his horse and rode out of town. But I guess the risk factor here is is just. Yeah the danger of the moment and the coolness of his you know deportment and how he encountered this man he knew wanted to kill him going around town 
and taking the risk. This is the weird thing to pay your taxes. <laughs> yeah. you're showing, I'm not going to let this guy uh, prevent me from performing my civic responsibility of paying my taxes. I'm going, going to town. I'm prepared. You know, this might be how it plays out. Uh, and it did. But that, that is such a fun story that I, I just felt like I got to. He was also yes. at uh, the Round Pond Massacre and uh, actually was one of the one of the, the bushwhackers who attacked um, this union uh, supply uh, sort of mule train that came in and he killed a couple of guys in that. But anyway, he's got a very so I'm, I'm planning. I'm actually speaking at a, a homeschool convention in Branson, Missouri uh, in March, which is only about an yeah. hour away from Gainesville. So I'm going to go down. I want to get a picture of this guy <laughs> just oh, so yeah, I can have yeah. a picture of my, my, you know, third great grandfather. I, he's got to, he's just got to have that look in the eye, <laughs> you know, it says you don't want to mess with this dude. But anyway, I, that's my dream is I hope to be able to get a, get a photograph of him. I'm also descended from Jenny Wiley, who was the pioneer woman who was abducted by the, by a, a, a raiding party of, of native Americans in, in uh, Kentucky. And oh, wow. all of her children were massacred, uh, and mm. she escaped after giving birth to her, I think, seventh child, and that child was killed. But she got away, and there's actually a park in Kentucky named for her, the Jenny Wiley uh, State Park in Kentucky. Oh, wow. So, I, you know, there are different, and that's, I've got others, too. So I've got, I'm just sort of exploring, <laughs> so I might use her story yes. as well in the book. Yes. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Chris, one of the things that it, it strikes with me is, uh, I think for a lot of men, uh, we resonate with stories about Josie Wales and, and what you're talking about with your grandfather. But what we especially resonate with, I think, is that knowing like these risk-taking, bold, courageous men were in our bloodlines too, right? And the idea that their blood is still in us. So what do you think yeah. it is about men that make stories like that particularly enthralling to, to hear and to want to somehow maybe even live out part of it in our own lives? What do you think it is? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I know that when I learned these stories about my ancestors, I thought, wow. I mean, uh, you know, I've got some examples, people in my own line that I can look to uh, uh, for inspiration. And, you know, I'm in some measure, I mean, it's pretty watered down now, of course. <laughs> but in some measure, <laughs> maybe, I'm connected. Maybe you missed your calling <laughs> as a gunfighter. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, uh, but it's uh, but I but I do think because uh, generally speaking, men have historically been charged with the task of the protecting their loved ones, but also taking the risks required to give their uh, loved ones an advantage in the world, uh, something that they could give to them. There's something in the way that God has, I think, constituted uh, the masculine uh, frame of mind that uh, makes these stories appealing and inspirational and say, wow, with, you know, those guys did that. I can do something similar uh, in my own situation. I'm not going to get into a, an open air gunfight with a corrupt police official, <laughs> but, but there are other sorts of risks that I can yeah. uh, take that are going to, if they work out, be, uh, will enrich my family. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. One of the other questions I have is, you know, especially thinking about risk and generations, one of the things I've tended to hear a lot of about, say, like the boomers, is there's this critique that they were the risk-averse generation. So I guess my first question is, do you think that's true? Is there any merit to that? 
And maybe if so, why? Well, I think in one way, boomers um, had a very uh, unusual kind of unprecedented sample of time. Following the Second World War, essentially all of our competitors were like rebuilding after just, you know, being completely devastated, you know. Yeah. Um, so we had glo- we were basically unchallenged in the global marketplace. We had, you know, a country that's industrial machinery was still largely in place and functioning well and people were returning home and there was just it was the opportunities that their uh, parents didn't know. And they took it for granted. And I think they squandered some of their inheritance. Uh, you know, you think about the 60s and what occurred during that time period. But I think because the frame of reference that they have is so unusual, they, they don't appreciate how good they had it. Uh, and they don't appreciate how things have changed for their even their own children and grandchildren, how things are not the same. Risk averse, yeah, yes, in a lot of ways, I think uh, they just found themselves in a world where things were being done for them that hadn't been done for other generations. And it, in many respects, was sort of an easier uh, world to live in, a more comfortable world than even, like I noted, their their parents and grandparents had known. I mean, their, their parents and grandparents had experienced First World War, the Great Depression, you know, Second World War. Boomers, as, the as you know, they're part of the baby boom that that came on the scene after the Second World War. So the 50s, 60s, it's pretty, yeah, we had the Cold War and, you know, there's Korea and Vietnam and so forth. But nevertheless, they had a boom economy that they enjoyed and and a lot of economic uh, opportunity that, that their parents and grandparents hadn't enjoyed. And I think their children don't enjoy today. It doesn't mean that there aren't opportunities today. I do, I do think that there are, and I do think that they're, are things that young people can do that will put them in a really good position going forward, but it's, it's not the same. Yeah. It brings up a good question. I think something that, um, at least we've noted, I I think you've probably seen too, judging on some of your Facebook posts. Uh, there seems to be a divide right between boomers and, uh, really Gen Z millennial. Uh, you see a lot of complaints. It, for my money, it's kind of an interesting one because you have boomers, uh, and then their offspring who, you know, there's animosity on both sides. We got the OK Boomer movement um, sort of <laughs> dismissing the older generation. But then on the flip side, too, you also have, you know, boom, boomers saying you know, it's the most selfish generation of all time. And we might retort, well, they're also like you raised them. So where did it come from? Right. So one one way or the other, you can know that there's generational divide. So my question to you is. Do you see that? And, and what do you think is contributing at the core to that division? So I'm, I'm a bit of an odd duck. So I was a late boomer. And my parents were kind of bohemian. Uh, my father was a professor or, or on faculty, junior, very junior, at Washington U in St. Louis. And then before that, at University of Buffalo. So I, in, my, in my early years, I was in this sort of artsy, experimental everybody's seeking kind of environment. And, and one of the things about the me generation is that there was a deep conviction that you didn't really, uh, you weren't really defined by your social roles, uh, that you had to find yourself that 
soft that you were looking for invariably was in California or, <laughs> or someplace you weren't, you know. And it, it was always somehow uh, found when you abandoned your your dependence and stuff like that. So that's what happened in my case. So I was a kind of an early, I guess, latchkey kind of kid, you could say. I was pretty much on my own by the time I was like nine years old. And then when our household fell apart, I was uh, word of the state, lived in public housing uh, and so forth. So I got acquainted with a whole other kind of world, which was sort of the underclass and, you know, people who are dependent upon the state for their, their survival and stuff like that. So I, I, I've had that. And then my family was kind of, this is really weird, kind of uh, wealthy. Uh, so my, my, my grandparents were pretty well to do. So I've got kind of these, seg- these segments or slices of, of, in terms of my life and my, my experience. And so I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable in a wide range of environments uh, for those reasons. And then I spent my teen years in Western Pennsylvania in a very blue collar. This is during the period of time where I was awarded the state, a very blue collar environment where there were a lot of men who worked with their hands that I came to uh, admire and uh, was really positively influenced by. So there was some surrogate fatherhood uh, kind of dynamics there with those guys. So that's why I have a, an interest in sort of blue collar interests, you know, trades and hunting and things like that. But um, in terms of uh, this dynamic, uh, the two generations, um, I think partly it's due to a reaction that some boomers had to the, to the neglect that they felt that their parents were guilty of. So... They, they, be, they became the kind of the helicopter parent uh, generation and didn't give the, their children enough room to really kind of encounter the world in the ways that maybe would have been more conducive to success. So there are, I think, some challenges that millennials face in kind of getting over the sort of the cocoon environment that maybe that they feel like they were raised in in certain cases, and kind of get out there and experience the world. Uh, And I think that's one of the unintended consequences of the way boomer parents uh, worked with their kids or treated their kids. In terms of how the world has changed, I think that because obviously, you know, people are super connected through social media and stuff like that, there are things that you know, young people have access to today that boomers just simply didn't have access to. I mean, when I was a kid, we know there were basically three networks, television networks and PBS, you know, so, you know, everybody was watching the same shows and they were, you know, they were pretty mainstream. I mean, like Partridge Family was maybe the most risque (laughs) out there, you know, you know, so, so there's, there's that dynamic. And then of course, uh, because of globalism, uh, and because of the way that the sort of the, the global economy has transformed the American economic landscape, there are just certain things that are different. So like when I was young, I knew a lot of guys who uh, really did see the blue collar life as really the, the life to pursue. Their fathers had worked in the factories. They intended uh, to pursue the same kind of life. Uh, you know, those were the days where you could really afford. I mean, there really were people who were working 
you know, for like, say, Pittsburgh Plate and Glass, PPG, PPG, who could afford a home. Uh, mom could stay at home and raise the kids. Uh, you know, they could still afford a pickup truck and a car, you know, and uh, that was normal. That's not the case, generally speaking, today. Um, if you're going to pursue that kind of life, you got to do it very intentionally. And, and it's just not a given like it was at that time. And of course, you know, during the late 70s, early 80s, with offshoring, uh, all those factories were shut down. Uh, those places that had been, you know, vibrant blue collar communities were in just a state of depression economically, but also just sort of in terms of demoralized. And then everybody was encouraged to go to college. And, you know, that was seen as being the only legitimate avenue to kind of get ahead in life. And, and then people pursued that. And, and initially it was, uh, you know, not all that expensive, uh, but over time, uh, you know, we've seen inflation in higher education, you know, outpace inflation in the, the rest of the economies several times over. So now we, we find a lot of young people who find themselves almost a, a, in a state of indentured servitude. You know, they've got fifty, sixty, eighty thousand dollars of student loan debt. I've, I've seen it because I'm a landlord, and I see the credit reports for many of the young people, particularly young women, and they're just—it's unbelievable. These these are women who are, you know, want to be nurses or elementary school teachers, and they've got sixty thousand dollars of student loan debt plus uh, the loan on the car that they feel like they need to have, which they they, they think you know, needs to be new because they don't want to have it break down, you know, somewhere and not have any way to take care of the, the you know, the problem. They just don't have that wherewithal to do that. And so they, the, so a lot of uh, the institutions in our society have taken advantage of the situation that, that millennials and Generation X and so forth find themselves in. So, yeah, that's very different. You know, I don't, you know, when, when uh, my wife and I graduated from college, our combined student loan debt was $20,000. That was, you know, in today's money, not insignificant, but we were able to handle it. It was, but it was also the lower cost of living in every other way. I bought, we bought our first two family for $135,000 in the south uh, section of Boston. It's worth almost a million dollars today. You know, it's just, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it, was, it was just a different time. So yeah. you know, there are significant differences today, and and I don't think that boomers are fully fully appreciate those differences. Now that's not to say those differences can't be, uh, or the, the new challenges can't be met. I think they can. There just needs to be an approach taken that our public institutions are not encouraging young people to take. But you can do it. So I know young people who are doing just fine, but they've they basically defied. The conventional wisdom every step of the way, right? Back back in the day, you could just sort of follow the conventional wisdom and do fine. Today, you got to defy the conventional wisdom in order to do well. Yeah, so I think part of the generational divide is that millennials and Zoomers find boomers' advice to not be very helpful in the current right. situation because because, like you said, they don't know the times as well. So, just I guess as like a father, what sort of fatherly advice? would you give to, to men today, you know, that would be helpful for them to build their house? Yeah. Well, I have two grown sons and so I've, I've done it. 
<laughs> yeah. And, and maybe you could have them on the show sometime and they, they could tell their side of the story. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but they're both married. They both have children. Uh, they both own their own homes. So, you know, they're doing it. So my oldest son went to Wheaton College, uh, married a, a beautiful girl there, uh, and kind of did the more conventional approach to things. But, you know, I, all the way along, you know, we would talk about these matters and talk about getting into property and how to how to go about it. Uh, so I, I actually uh, was involved with the purchase of, this, of the homes of, for both of my sons. I didn't give them money directly, but because I still had my real estate license, I uh, was in a position to uh, give them the referral, you know, uh, that I had received in both cases. And actually, my second son's case, I actually represented uh, him and his wife. And as for their housewarming gift, I gave them my commission. I said, here you go. And a little money to help you get started. And I actually, in that case, I actually negotiated a really sweet deal for them. I actually was able to get the house that they ended up buying out of another contract uh, and put them in a situation where they had great equity from the, from the get-go in the house, far more than they actually put in. But uh, that was because I had, you know, uh, you know, a, a high degree of involvement in their lives without controlling. I didn't, I never try to, I don't try to control them at all, but you know, we, we we talk all the time. We have, we've got good relationships uh, so my oldest son works with us in the theology podcast. He's he's our our tech handles all the stuff with that. But he's an audio engineer and works in Nashville and has many clients there and you know works with like Lifeway and stuff like that. Uh, and cool. then my second my second son is he works with all of our real estate up in Connecticut. And so I'm on the you know I'm texting with those you know both of those guys every week about different matters. So we're, mm. we're, you know, we're working together, but they, they also have their own businesses and things that they do. But I guess uh, when it comes to what, what I say to young guys, I would say, uh, first of all, um, you know, finding uh, the right woman is really important. And uh, there are things that you can do to identify that woman and um, uh, win her. Um, so a high, there are high quality women out there. I know some guys are so, so jaded that they believe they don't believe that's the case. Well, sure. If you spend all your time on Tinder, <laughs> you're going to, you're going to find a lot uh, the wrong kind of girl, you know, or, uh, you know, spend your time in, you know, uh, you know, bars, you know, singles bar. Yeah. You're not going to find the kind, but there are a lot of really great gals out there still. And, and knowing where to, where to, to, to look for them is important. Then knowing how to win them, uh, is also important. So I, I coached both of my sons through that whole process uh, with both of the both of their their situations and was pleased to see that they they won the girl in both cases both really great gals. But I think that's that's foundational. I think you also need to kind of uh, have aspirations to control your life economically as well as you can and plan to do that doesn't mean you don't work for other people, but it also means you don't like throw in your entire sort of uh, future in with anybody either. You know, you're, you're kind of thinking about your own situation. So like in the, in the case of my second son, he works for uh, a very large steel firm uh, construction company in the Hartford area. And he was able to go into them and just give them the ultimatum. He said, if you, unless you give me what I want, I'm gone. And they give him everything he wanted. <laughs> they, you know, he's so good, you know, and they, they, they want him so bad. He's 25 years old and he's the lead fabricator in a company of like, 
250, 300 guys, you know? That's great. <laughs> so he was like, you know, you, you know, you, you know, and they said, yeah, okay, we'll give you everything you want. But that ability to kind of make that kind of move. And he didn't even ask my advice about it. He just said, Hey dad, this is what I'm going to do. I'm like, Whoa, dude, are you sure you want to do that? He's like, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it worked out great. So when he did that was when his wife was expecting and he knew that he was going to have to carry the whole load. She had been working part time. So he said, I need this much extra money in order to replace her income. And that was his goal. He says, I'm going to get that. And that's what he did. And so he had the confidence uh, in his own abilities and a good sense of where he stood in his in sort of the 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 the, the, the opinion of his employers to make that step. So, you know, in terms of what, a, what a, you know, a father should do, I think a father should coach, uh, have an ongoing conversations with younger men, uh, particularly with his own sons, about a full range of things. You know, what kind of house should you get? What kind of woman should you marry? You know, what kind of approach should you take to property and livelihood and employment? All those kinds of things. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, Chris, one of the things that uh, Dan and I were talking about recently. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there's this really popular YouTube channel. I think it's Dad. How do I? Yeah, I've heard of that. It, we were looking at it. And we're like, this is really interesting. But really kind of what it pointed out to us was like some of his most popular videos are one that's like, I'm proud of you. Yeah. And yeah. we're kind of watching it and we're thinking like, why does this resonate so much with this generation? I think you're getting to some of that, like the things that we should have got from fathers, um, just basic competencies. So maybe just talk just a little bit about when you're talking about building a house, you're talking about legacy, you're talking about inheritance. Why are just like practical manly competencies? Why is that so important to pass on and to have that body of knowledge? Uh, your competence is the basis uh, very often for your authority uh, mm. in a practical sense. It's the person who knows uh, what to do and when to do it that other people defer to. Now, obviously, as you know, a father, you have a position uh, in a in a household structure, and that position is kind of like royalty in in the sense that you know you didn't do anything except to have kids. <laughs> you, know, you know, you're just in that you're in that spot. But we all know that uh, you get a a measure of uh, I guess credibility just for that. But in order for you to carry forward with the work of uh, a father uh, in the course of the lives of your children, you, you've got to have more going for you than just simply I'm your father. <laughs> you know, if you're like a total idiot, don't know how to do anything, you know, all that stuff, uh, you know, at some point you just become a figurehead. Um, and just like the royal family in the, you know, the United Kingdom, uh, you don't have any real uh, influence. <laughs> so, in order to, to have real influence in the lives of your children, not in a dictatorial way or manipulative way. I think sometimes guys resort to those things because they think that that's what they need to do in order to, uh, you know, exercise authority. But if you're going to have influence in a way that's healthy and actually enriches your children, then you have to master things and then be a source of insight and uh, competence for them that they, they draw on. So over the years, you know, my, my sons would work with me uh, on our properties. They'd see me do real estate deals. They saw me, you know, you know, working with banks and, you know, even subcontractors. And 
a lot of that uh, was just a process of osmosis. They'd see this occur and they would have a sense that, oh, okay, that's feasible. That's possible. I could do that too. Uh, and then, you know, you'd come down to learning practical skills. So both of my, both of my sons are highly skilled artisans and took the high road to mastering their crafts. So like in the, in the case of my oldest son, I remember a lot of his friends when he was a teenager were into Guitar Hero. Do you remember that, that thing yes. where you yes. pretend like you were, a, a, you know, like a, a great guitarist, you know, yes. but you really didn't know how to do anything? And my son said, well, what, why don't they just learn how to play the guitar? <laughs> so, so he taught himself how to play. And he's, now he, he can, he, he's a, you know, a, an accomplished musician and can, he's a master of a number of stringed instruments. But he took the hard road and became, you know, uh, competent and skilled uh, with that, with that craft of, you know, playing. My second son, uh, he actually forged the rings that be, are the wedding rings that he and his wife wear. Uh, wow. He taught himself how to do it. So you remember that Ron Swanson uh, uh, episode where he takes the sconce and he like makes a couple of rings uh, kind of out of yes. that sconce. My, my second son actually did that. They're gold. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And they look great. I mean, they look like you. So he, he, yes. he, he bought the diamond. He created the, the engagement ring, set it himself, and then uh, forged the, the, the ring that he wears and the ring that his wife wears. And it was entirely self-taught. He just, I remember wow. him experimenting with brass. You know, he, he, you know, there were probably 30 or 40 rings that he made out of brass before he was ready for actually doing it with gold. <laughs> That's probably an exaggeration. <laughs> yes. It was probably far fewer than that. But anyway, I remember yes. him doing it in the garage. What are you working on? I'm making the rings. <laughs> that kind of thing. That's great. <laughs> but yeah, that's both wonderful. of them, uh, but I, in terms of how I work with them over the years, you know, I would see something in them uh, and encourage that, talk to them about it. You know, we would, we would have, I would have uh, breakfast. I'd take them out for breakfast once a month you know, individually, and we just talk about life and what they're doing and that kind of thing. So there was always a, a really positive uh, kind of uh, interaction between us about everything. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Chris, one of the things I want to ask you is the, um, when you, we look at some of the books you've written and the ones that we tend to share with young men, Dan, when we're counseling people, uh, Man of the House, um, and then the, your book through canon, uh, The Household and the War for the Cosmos, my question to you on those books, you've, you've got a lot of ideas like patriarchy and uh, Pietas and, you know, really productive property stuff that you've talked a lot about. My question is, what was it in your life that brought those things? Like, when did you start thinking about those subjects and, and starting to realize like, yeah, I'm going to get into real estate. So I have something to pass on to my kids, competence, uh, property, the restaurant, like, where did all this come from? Well, um, I grew up in, a, a very progressive, uh, settings, and I knew that they were all morons, and so I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really think that they had anything to teach me about much of anything. Uh, you know, even as a kid, I, 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 I was completely, I guess, disillusioned with the left. Uh, I, there was a period of time where I did a little, I dabbled a, a bit for a couple of years, kind of in Marxist uh, theory and stuff like that. But particularly yeah. the sexual revolution stuff, I always thought was just nuts. So what that did is, you know, when I was younger and having kids, I thought, well, I need to, 
think about, you know, what are the models? And I, I, there was a high regard that I had for those blue collar guys in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, they knew how to do things. They worked with their hands. When I was in seminary, I worked uh, uh, for a commercial contractor, worked my way through seminary initially with him. And then uh, I was in a collaborative with a bunch of other seminary guys, uh, and we built decks and did framing and stuff like that all over Kansas City. So I learned the trades that way. Uh, so, you know, this is this is the fun thing. I, I look back in those days with great fondness. So we would all uh, jump in our trucks after class in the morning at seminary and head out to the work sites. You know, it'd be 90 degrees outside. We'd have our shirts off. We're sweating like pigs, you know, we're, and all whole time we're, we're arguing theology as we're building, yes. <laughs> you know, we're shouting at each other and stuff <laughs> like that, <laughs> quoting theologians at each other. Uh, those were great days and great guys. But anyway, that, that's what, that's what introduced me personally to the trades after having, you know, uh, those models back in Western Pennsylvania, uh, that, I, that I admired. And then, um, when it came to, you know, just the subject of patriarchy, because I, I knew that, uh, the left was not sound in terms of its approach to family life. I took an interest in learning about how the household was understood prior to the modern era. And that's what got me into, you know, Xenophon and Aristotle and so forth. And, and as I, as I, uh, worked with those writers, I came to see that they were misrepresented by modern thinkers and that essentially they were libeled that, you know, they weren't presented in the best light, not even in a good light, but just simply their motives, their, their ways of doing things were dismissed as benighted and, and cruel and so forth. But once you, once you, once you get into it, once you understand what actually was sort of required in order to make a household work in a world prior to the industrial revolution and the rise of the welfare state, you, you see that it had to work the way, the way it did. And what, what I needed to do at that point is say, you know, is this still the case? Uh, is it still the case that we need men to, to think and behave in these terms or are, are men actually obsolete? And I came uh, after thinking about it, maybe two minutes. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, they're not obsolete. In fact, every single household that I had personally, uh, uh, you know, sort of seen that was successful was headed by a father who authoritatively cared for his family uh, mm. and did so in ways that were patriarchal in character. It doesn't mean that they, you know, uh, didn't love and appreciate their wives and, and didn't respect the, the, the choices their kids made, but they, they comported themselves with a level of personal authority that most people think uh, is either impossible to practice or if it is practice, it's got to be horrendously oppressive. And, but I saw those guys raise young women who went on to be uh, happy and, and uh, fruitful women, happy and fruitful sons. And so I said, okay, I need to be the advocate for this truth, this reality. It's in the best interest of men and women. It's in the best interest of uh, even our political order. Because um, if the household collapses, if we don't see functional households, uh, you know, thriving, 
well, the welfare state's just going to continue to absorb, you know, these desperately needy people who have no other recourse but to rely upon it. So anyway, all of that was in play. When it comes to real estate, I just always wanted to own my own stuff. <laughs> and that was really all there was to it initially. But as I started, as I grew in my appreciation of the household and its basis in a, in a, as, a, as a productive economy, I, I came to see that in antiquity, uh, middle ages, whatever, productive property was always at the center of every household uh, enterprise. And since that was the case, I, I thought, well, we need to we need to see that today as well. And I think it, I think we're actually in a in a great moment where where the the prospects for recovering the the productive household are as good or better than they've been in a century. Why do you think that, Chris? Well, it has to do with paradoxically uh, the internet and what mm. what we are able to to achieve today. So uh, what we're seeing is the kind of the de- the diffusion or the decentralization of even the industrial uh, machinery of, of our society. And, and because of the ability to communicate and work together intellectually and even manufacture and ship things, uh, I think that we are at a point where we could see people being able to uh, you know, live where they want to live and still participate in the global economy. So I'm not a I'm not a luddite. I think that uh, there are great things about the past. I think there are great things about the present. What we need to do is find creative uh, approaches to bringing the best of both together. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, one of the other questions related to this in the real estate, you know, you, you kind of have two sides, right? Where people right now are like, oh, everything, you know, it's going to crash, whatever. But I think you've said there's actually a lot of opportunity. Um, so for somebody who wants to get into it, sees the value of it, says, yeah, I want to get into the real estate. Just curious, like where you started, maybe that's different than what you would recommend with today, but what would you say is a good place for people to begin? Well, I think small town America is where the opportunities are today. Uh, mm-hmm. when, I, when I was getting started, the opportunities were in the inner city. It's hard for people to appreciate just how different like life was in inner city Boston in the late eighties and early nineties. And we had the crack epidemic. I was mugged by two guys outside the Ashmont tea station with a machete. Uh, I was in the, I was at the Shavu gang fight that made the front page of the Boston globe. Uh, My truck was stolen from, from uh, a Cobman square in the middle of the day. Uh, I remember pulling pulling away, and I'm running down the street after it. <laughs> it was a wild time. Man, wow. it sounds like you should have been a gunfighter. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> well, actually, we even had a crack addict who lived with us for a while. Oh wow! It was a different world. I mean, so if you remember, like films like Escape from New York or Escape from L.A., the reason why yeah. those films were like uh, produced is because people were wondering: Are we descending into that kind of chaos? Like, like, yeah, even the, like Charles Bronson. Uh, oh, yeah. The, oh, yeah. Yeah. Death Wish. Yeah. But it was right. about like surviving oh, yeah. New York and getting mugged. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. So I remember the 70s. I remember being in Times Square and being propositioned by prostitutes every, every like block 
uh, you know, the only people who were selling anything in New in Times Square at that time were guys who were like trying to sell stolen goods uh, out of their like trunks, <laughs> stuff like that. That was yeah, that was New like York. Shanghai. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a wild world. And if you wow. said, you know, I, I live in Dorchester, people would say, oh, that's dangerous. Uh, how do you live there? Well, that's where I bought my first property. Uh, mm. And they were desperate. You know, so banks and, and municipalities, cities across America were giving you great deals. So I got in at like 5% down. Wow. But the interest rate was eight and three quarters. <laughs> so I, it, was a, it was a great opportunity, a great time to buy, precisely because no one wanted to live there. No one, no one anticipated the Rudy Giuliani, you know, broken windows policing thing having the impact that it did. No one anticipated. Mm. So, that was, so I got into a little spat with Tim, Tim Keller the other day on Twitter. <laughs> I basically said the reason why your whole model worked is because of Ruli Giuliani. And he took uh, wow. issue with me on, on some things. And anyway, <laughs> but it's but it's true today. That's where, you know, cool, hip people want to live. Nobody was thinking that in the early 90s. So today it's a different scene. Everything is gentrified. Everything is priced way out of sight. That was a big deal, right? I mean, I know I saw you talking about that, too, but this whole. Like for 20 years, I mean, early ministry and pastorate uh, that I experienced, everything was about for the city, yeah. for the city, for the city. You know, and some of that now, I, I don't know if you think it's shifting, but it seems like people are starting to realize, well, actually a small town would be a lot easier to capture if you wanted to change a place and really invest in it and, and see change. There's that. But the other part of it is a lot of these urban leaders don't have the best interests of the young people that they're talking to in mind. Essentially what you, what you, let's, okay, let's say you want to go to San Francisco. Okay. What's your prospects for buying a, a house in San Francisco? What's your prospect for like buying zero. a house even in the great? Yeah, that's exactly right. You, you are an indentured servant for Jesus. You know, <laughs> that's it. You know, you're, you yeah. got zero uh, chance because you're, you're not just competing with other people like yourself. You're competing with, investors, you're competing with foreign, yeah. foreign money, wealthy people. So here's, can me give you an example. When I, I remember being uh, in the Lambs Club in uh, Times Square. Uh, I was involved with a kind of consultation on urban youth ministry, and it was still very seedy, run down. I remember a, uh, there was this uh, protest that occurred right outside the building with a bunch of Marxists going down the street beating drums, and it was just nuts. Today, today the Lambs Club is a home, is the home to a five star restaurant that uh, one of the Iron Chefs has established, and wow. the airspace above the Lambs Club was sold for a hundred million dollars. I'm talking about vacant air space. I know the guy who did the deal. Dollars. Yeah, I know the guy who did the deal. He's, he's an old mentor of mine. But anyway, uh, think about that. That is now. Uh, yeah. The most expensive hotel in New York. I think it's like tw it's like ten thousand dollars a night to stay there. Whoa! Think about Ooh. that. So you go from this like Charles Bronson death wish scene <laughs> that nobody <laughs> wants anything to do with, where you could people were like begging you. Like, and I lived in Central Square in Cambridge back during the days of rent control. You could buy a two family uh, in Cambridge for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Wow. Today, that same property is two million. Whoa! It's a different world. Yeah. So, where can you find uh, good deals today? Small town America. They're begging people. 
you know, you, you got the same kind of dynamics even. Opioid crisis, you know, people say, oh, I don't want to live in this, uh, you know, sort of depressed area. That's where the opportunities are. Now, if, like the state of Vermont will, will pay you $12,000 to move there. So if you're a remote worker, uh, they set it up precisely for this purpose. They say, we need people. We need young people. Please move yeah. to Vermont. Now, people say, well, it's liberal. It's, yeah, of course, whatever, you know, but you've got opportunity there. And I and you can buy some beautiful old 19th century, you know, 19th century, early 20th century homes, you know, for like $200,000 or less. Yeah, they need a lot of work. Yeah, you're in Rutland, Vermont, which is economically depressed. Yeah, you're surrounded by people in opioids and you got Bernie Sanders up the road. Yeah, that's all true. <laughs> but, if, but if you but if you're telecommuting. Yeah. You know, you know, you may be working for some some firm out of San Francisco. You're making good money, and you're in a place where you can build some equity. So, and I I I, I identified eight states that will pay you to move there, and move really? into an economically eight? depressed. There's yeah, eight of yeah. There's, I mean, Church Arkansas. Landing. Because I thought it was just Alaska. Yeah, so Alaska's one of them. Iowa's one of them. Minnesota's another one. So there are a lot of places. Where you can get some, uh, there where there's real opportunity, and if you're either an entrepreneur uh, and you want to like start something, uh, you know you got all kinds of uh, you know tax incentives, you know even capital that people want to invest in efforts to to start businesses in these areas, and you know cash, <laughs> you know Arkansas, I think Arkansas will pay you like twelve thousand dollars. West Virginia, now so let's say you don't like you know Bernie Sanders. But you love mountains and, and, and greenery. Move to West Virginia. <laughs> it's great. It's a beautiful yeah. place. It's as beautiful as Vermont. I've, I've been in both places. They're both great. That's crazy. So I'm interested, Chris. We've seen a lot of shift and change the last couple of years. People moving uh, for various reasons, COVID, all that. I wonder, you know, being in real estate, have you seen any patterns develop? Is there a settling theme happening? How do you see the change resulting i guess in fruit I, I don't i don't know if it's too early to tell well each each I, this is my fourth correction so i each one has its own flavor yeah so the thing that happened in 2008 occurred because of the subprime mortgage thing and then you know yeah. the bundling of mortgages so that's that's not the the case this time the case this time is there were a lot of investment firms that got into residential real estate and uh, they were buying up entire neighborhoods um, and then just renting them out. It seemed to make sense in terms of return on investment, but now it no longer does. And they're starting to lose money. And, and many of them are losing so much money that they're going out of business. And I think that what really? we're seeing now is a lot of property kind of just kind of working its way back onto the market. Now, in the, in the first phase of this process, there's a lot of money that's been sitting on the side waiting that has to be exhausted before the real opportunities are there for people. So we may be, you know, nine months to two years out from the real bottom because uh, it does take a while for these things to play out. But I do think that even then, you know, there are there are still opportunities. I was just talking to somebody about places in Connecticut that I think have a lot of upside, and I encouraged him to look at those places. They tend to be kind of gritty areas, but a lot of character and. Um, I think could be turnaround communities. So you can do something today. You can wait. Uh, I think, I think, I don't know if we'll see the same kind of correction we saw in 2008. They were like 
huge opportunities then. I bought a two-family for 50 cents on the dollar right after the crash. It was owned by Deutsche Bank. They were, they were in Connecticut. I don't know why they were in Connecticut, but <laughs> anyway, uh, it was a foreclosure, and I got it. And uh, that was actually a property that, that my boys worked with me on, and we still own it. So I don't think we'll see that kind of collapse, but I do think we're in the midst of a correction that's going to take a while to play out. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, so I'm just curious. You know, we've been talking a lot about millennials, economic opportunities and things like that. I guess just what words of encouragement would you give to younger guys right now that probably feel like they're beat up? I know like just counseling men right now, I've got some guys who are blue collar guys. They have degrees in like welding or CNC machining and they can they can't even buy a house. You know, like what kind of what encouragement would you give to these guys? Yeah, I think that uh, there are a couple of things to keep in mind. I, I bought my first property when I was 30, um, 33, mm. 34. Mm-hmm. So both of my sons are doing better than me. You know, my, one of my sons bought, you know, his home when he was 28 and the other one bought his home when he was 23. I would encourage them, uh, to think, you know, not be discouraged to see that, you know, they're, they're particularly if they're in their twenties and early thirties, they, they should be uh, working to position themselves to take advantage of the opportunity when it arrives. I would encourage mm. them to keep their eyes open and become familiar with the market. I must have looked at, I don't know, 20 places before I bought my first place. You have to have that kind of exposure to the market to, to recognize the deal when you, when, you, when you have it. Otherwise, you might miss it. You might not read the situation well. So I would say keep looking keep preparing, keep putting money aside uh, to prepare for that. Then I would also encourage them to uh, learn about various opportunities and programs. So when I I talk to young guys who are discouraged in this way, I'll I'll say, have you talked to a realtor yet? Uh, Most of the time they haven't. Uh, They're just looking, they're just dealing with sticker shock. They're not actually sitting down with. So what I would say is you want to, you want to find a veteran who's maybe gone through two or three cycles, who has a kind of knowledge of the market that say, you know, your cousin who just got his uh, real estate license doesn't have. So like my, my, uh, my mentor in real estate was a guy who is in his eighties. Now he's been doing this for over 55 years. I just, I just took him with my second son to look at a property in Connecticut, 18 acres a house that was built in 1840 on the market for 375. Whoa! Without buildings, without buildings, in a beautiful town uh, in rural Connecticut. They're out there. The deals are out there. Uh, in fact, one of the things I suggested to my my old mentor is I said, "Hey, if I offered them 250 for this, what would you do?" He said, "I'd put it in an envelope and send it to him and make sure I wasn't around." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I would do it. And so I remember years ago, I, I had him take me out to look at some, some, some two families and we were together and he, and he's, and we looked at maybe three of them and he said, you need to go bigger. I was like, really? So yeah, you need to go bigger. And I said, well, how big? He said, how about 16? I said, you're kidding me. So we, went, we t- took a look at a 16 unit apartment complex that was on the market. I bought it. If you had asked me before, uh, you know, that conversation with that mentor, do you think you could pull that off? I would have said, no way, <laughs> but I did it mm. now. I mean, I went all out. I had three loans 
on that property <laughs> to make that deal happen. I mortgaged my house. Man. I made a lot of money on that deal. I sold it before the crash in 2008, so I did really well on it. But a, a mentor like that will say, I know. So in his case, I, this is kind of funny. He, he said, uh, I'm on the board of the bank. Let's go talk to the senior vice president. So we did. <laughs> and before we went in, you know, my, my mentor said, you know, bankers aren't all that smart. He said, if they were smart, they'd do what we're doing. And I was like, really? So we, we, we were in there and I'm, I'm like, at this point, I'm maybe like 40 years old, 41, something like that. And we're sitting talking to the senior vice president of commercial lending at this bank. And uh, we're working out the arrangement to actually make the deal happen. And he looks at me and says, I should be doing what you're doing. <laughs> I looked over at my mentor and we just both smiled at each other. And, and, and anyway, it's, it's just a fun story. But uh, a good mentor who knows the local market will know uh, everything about, you know, what really is uh, going on there, what the opportunities are, what the funding sources are, what you can actually get accomplished. So a lot of guys just don't realize that, you know, your first time, your first purchase, you don't need 20%. You really don't. Mm, interesting. You may be able to get into your property for 5% or maybe even 3%. First time home buyer programs are designed to help you get into property. Yes. Those are still out there. Those, those, uh, I did, I've probably done over the course of my, you know, time as an investor, but also of representing other, I've probably done 75 deals. You'd be, you'd just be astonished at the ways deals can get done. So don't be discouraged. You just need somebody who knows the local situation, knows how to set up the funding. It's like in the case with my second son, we're looking at this property. I like two days after I'm looking at it, I'm with another friend who's got some finances and I said, I describe it to him and he says, that's exactly the sort of thing I'm interested in. So I connected him with my son. So my son might get into this property with a partner who's able, he might be able to buy the entire property cash. You know, so there are all sorts of things that uh, can can develop if you just keep your eyes open, get connected to the right people, and 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 think out loud and talk about what you'd like to do. There, you you might discover that there are people out there that can give you help that you'd never suspect would be uh, able to help. Yeah, there are some opportunities I know locally with seller financing as well. Yeah, because the banks are challenging to work with. There are opportunities, but it sounds like, you know. Uh, doing something is better than doing nothing. I know that's something you're going to talk about in your book, Risk, but um, you had published an article some years ago about the barbell of risk. That was, yeah. I mean, act absolutely reformational in my life. Especially, I think, for pastors. When you're pastoring yeah. and thinking about that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so I'm just wondering, like, as far as that barbell of risk, you, you said you had three loans out and everything like that. I'm guessing that all of your weights weren't stacked on that side. You might have been a little heavy on one side, but did you have balance in that? Or was that what, what inspired the article to say like, hey, maybe you shouldn't do this? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I had other properties at that time. You know, I had a lot of uh, competence. You know, this wasn't like my first rodeo. And... Uh, I had extensive networks. So when it comes to this illustration of the barbell, I, I, I got, it, got it from Nassim Nicholas Taleb, the guy who wrote The Black Swan and Anti-Fragile. And his point is, is that for every risk you take, you need some kind of counterweight. So that's the barbell. Yeah. You know, if you're, out on, if you're way out here on the right, you need something really stable on the left. It kind of works like a cantilever. So like in a cantilever, as you know, you know you've got this... Uh, 
platform that sticks out from a building that doesn't appear to have any support. Actually, it's got a lot of support. It's tied in to the building at the far end. So it, generally, a cantilever is as deep into the structure of the building as you see it go out on the other side and anchored in a way that makes you know, it capable of bearing the weight that it's going to have to bear when you're on, that, on, you know, on the end of it. And that's the way you should think about risk. If you're going to take a big risk like I took at that time, you know, I was probably, my net worth was probably as great as I was borrowing. So there's, mm. there's that. Uh, but the other thing is um, my networks were really strong. I had a really solid, uh, trusting wife. And that's super important. You know, your wife and your relationship with your wife is one of those anchoring points. So we would talk, you know, what are we going to do if this blows up? Well, we'll do this. We'll do that. <laughs> that kind of stuff. So we had Cardboard plans. boxes can keep you dry. <laughs> that's, right. Like, yes. that's right. So we had, you know, networks, professional networks and otherwise. Uh, but then, I, you know, as I noted, I also had some financial counterbalances or other things in my life. So, yeah, it's just an important concept to keep in mind. You don't want to be so like sometimes guys make the mistake of like betting the whole farm on the very first uh, thing and they have nothing yeah. sort of like to fall back on or no plan B. And of course, your wife is going to be a, a, a kind of uneasy about that. <laughs> you know, she's like, yeah, I love you. And uh, yeah, I trust you. But really? Do we want to live in cardboard boxes if this? <laughs> yeah. Is that the target? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Is that the fallback position? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's great. Uh, well, Chris, we really appreciate uh, you coming on the show to talk with us. Of course, we'll uh, be pushing out more information about the risk book as that approaches. Very excited to uh, read that and excited to share it with uh, our audience. So, again, sir, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, glad to do it. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for listening in on that interview. We hope that you found it helpful. Make sure you check out uh, Pastor Wiley's books and all the different resources that he has. Uh, there's a lot of wisdom to plumb there that we would encourage you to check out and continue learning from him. If you haven't already, put those books on your shelf and look forward to the book that he'll be publishing, Lord willing, with New Christendom Press in the not-too-distant future. Uh, as always, we want to encourage you to check out some of the links in the description of the show. There are ways to support the King's Hall podcast, help us continue to make high-quality Christian content that pushes forward the plow in the work of building new Christendom. One of the big things we'd like to highlight right now is actually a conference that we have coming up, and it's an opportunity for you, your friends, pastors, to join us here in Ogden, Utah, June 8th to the 10th year of our Lord 2023, we're going to be putting on an absolutely glorious conference. Glorious. Glorious. Yes. And the other thing that is glorious, Dan. Glorious. Oh, oh there it is. Got through the whole episode. I thought we weren't going to have <laughs> no, that. No, I, I couldn't do it to Chris. I didn't feel like that would have been no. maybe bad taste. No, he, he, he wouldn't he, have got the joke. He just closes the laptop he and just, leaves. I'm and, and you deserve it. But if you come to the conference, you get to meet Dan Face to face, and let me tell you, meeting Dan face to face, life changing. I'm not going to say for the better it or will worse, change but it will change. It life. will alter wow. the course of your destiny. Your destiny. I mean, yes. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You are the plan. That's going to be the theme of the conference. We we want to equip you 
to go home and be encouraged and exhorted to uh, do the work of building where you are in your churches, community, home, business, vocation, and even really more than the conference sessions. One thing that we really hope to see happen through this conference is for you to make friends, for you to network, meet other Christians who are like, I mean, some of you probably feel alone where you're at. Like there's nobody else who who thinks the way you think and they all look at you like you're insane when you say some of the things that we'd normally say here on the King's Hall. Uh, You're going to meet a lot of like-minded people here in Ogden if you can make it out. Yeah, I love it. A lot of it, I think, is networking. Like you said, a lot of conferences, you get a lot of talking. Yeah. And listen, Brian, I love talking. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Well, Dan. Dan. <laughs> Actually, you're right. Actually, yeah, I, I, we both I, were I like, do know, we know the answer. We're on the uh, same. We finished each other's sandwiches. Sandwiches. Um, that's how it goes. That was amazing. That was. Yes. That was amazing. You know what else is amazing about this conference is that seating is limited. What? Seating That's is limited. Actually, not amazing. Well, it can, one one benefit is that <laughs> it, it, it's not going to be 50,000 people. I know, of course, Kings Hall could fill arenas, right? Right. <laughs> no, okay. It depends on the size of the, of the arena. arena. That's right. Yeah, like but a Zoolander <laughs> arena. The seating <laughs> is limited. We wanted the conference to have a that church family feel, and so we are putting it on at Refuge Church, at our historic church building. And we only have so many seats, so seating is limited. Make sure you go check your calendar, sign up, get a ticket if you haven't already. There is a link in the description of this episode for you to get all the details and get a ticket there. We're going to be singing psalms. We're going to be feasting. We're going to be learning, hanging out, being friends. Oh, you said sea shanties? We're going to be sea shantying. Eric is going to put on a a concert (laughs) of musical interpretations of... Dance. Uh, yeah, da- dance, dance interpretation. Yeah. Actually, I've been reading about the shofar. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're gonna. Yeah. You're gonna oh, let yeah. it rip. Shofar huh? solo. Hey, you, you know, want to see revival in Christendom? Blow the shofar. I, I you got to blow the hey, shofar. I want these guys to get their tickets quick before the feds buy any. So. Yeah. <laughs> seriously, guys. We don't want the feds. We don't want the feds showing up. No fed boys. No fed boys. No fed boys. Well, I think that's all we've got on this episode of the King's Hall. So thanks for listening. And remember, wink it, quiz, wink it, he conquers who conquers himself. And we will catch you next time in the King's Hall.